So uh, this is a special episode of Mid-Faith Crisis Podcast. It's Nick here. Um, I'm on my own here introducing this because uh, Joe is away on holiday uh, without any internet access. I think that's right, isn't it? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we've just got an interview with uh, Dave Tomlinson, which we're, we're going to listen to now. How's your holiday going? It's great. And, and of course, this is, this is Joe from the past speaking again to Joe in the future. So... Yeah, that's an interesting dynamic doing this now. Hey, Joe, I thought you said you weren't going to eat and drink so much on holiday. What happened? Anyway, carry on. Welcome to episode... Oh, now I'm confused. Go with 162. Shall I? Yeah. Okay. Welcome to episode 162 of the Mid-Faith Crisis podcast. My name's Nick Page. It is. There is the holidaying Joe Davis. Hmm. Oh, man. <laughs> How is Club Tropicana? Oh, it's busy. The drinks are free. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so what we're going to do for you this week is we have got an interview that Joe did Mm. with uh, Dave Tomlinson. Joe, just set this up for us. Well, Dave is no stranger to this uh, podcast he's been on before. Of course, he runs the Holy Shed, which is like a church for people that don't go to church. Uh, he's got his own YouTube channel. He's a, he's just a lovely guy. He's, he's become a friend. I, I think it's not an exaggeration to say that. He really has. He's a lovely man. He's got some real wisdom to share. And one of the things that I've heard him talk about time and time again now is about Christian humanism. And it's not a very pleasant phrase. It doesn't sort of trip mm. off the tongue. And I feel it's a phrase that could be a bit controversial. But the more he, I have heard him unpacking it, the more I am quite drawn to it. And I, I just thought it'd be great for our listeners to hear him speak on this and respond to it. So, um, yeah. So so I, I set up this interview with asking Dave Tomlinson, what is Christian humanism, really? That's 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 the nature of it hope you enjoy it well dear friends um i am so excited to welcome back to the mid-faith uh, podcast um author uh, friend elder i want to say um but the most important one of those was friend dave tomlinson welcome back thank you it's lovely to be with you uh, and yeah elders all right as long as you don't think that means old no not at all <laughs> not at all Listen, we're in no position to talk about age on this podcast, believe me. <laughs> <laughs> listen, no, it's great to be with you, girl. Mate, it's been lovely. It's been fantastic to follow you uh, on the Holy Shed recently uh, as well. How's that going? Yeah, I think it's going really well. Um, you know, it's it's quite a bit over a year now that we've been doing this since the beginning of lockdown in uh, March last year. And um, there was no plan behind it you know what I mean it was it was a response to people saying you've got to do something Dave yeah so I said okay well I've got a shed I think yeah. it's holy and uh, and there it all began so I think it's gone well I think that obviously circumstances have changed a lot over that yeah. period of time and they're and they're changing now so quite how the holy shed needs to evolve into the future is yeah, something yeah. that I'm contemplating. Yeah. But I'm chuffed to have, I mean, it's one of the great things that's come out of all of this, isn't it? That, um, you know, every week I'm, I'm able, I'm privileged to be able to speak to people, not only all across this country, but, 
you know, people in New Zealand and Australia and America and Vietnam and Lord knows where. So yeah. it's, um, it's, it's very exciting, really. You know what I think it is, Dave? I've thought about this. I think the Holy Shed is a church for people who don't go to church. I really right. do. I really yeah, do. No, well, I think that's what, that's part of what a lot of people say to me, you know. Yeah. A lot of the messages I get are yeah. from people who say, you know, I, there's quite a few people who say I'm kind of on the edges and I'm, I'm just about dispersed, you know, or people who've given up, or, you know, quite a lot of people too who are not church going people at all. Yes. Um, yeah. But who obviously have some spiritual interest, hunger, aspiration. And, um, you know, they'd never go into a church. No. But that's the beauty of this technology, isn't it? You know, you can switch it's it on and off whenever you want. <laughs> and, and one of the things, you, you know, I've discovered as a funeral uh, celebrant is there, there seems to be more spiritual hunger about than ever. But people aren't going to church because, you know, they're not they're not really interested in what's being served up there would be my you know, assessment of the situation. Yeah, well, that's right. Uh, uh, and, or at the very least, they're not interested in what they think is going to be served up there. And yes, probably yeah. when they got there, they may find that that's true as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you're right. And, and I think that things like, uh, I mean, well, funerals are such a, a privileged activity, aren't they, to be able to lead. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, people are at their most kind of vulnerable and perhaps asking some of the biggest questions, you know. I mean, two weeks ago, I took the funeral of uh, of Nathan, Nath, they call him, in North London, mm. uh, 32 years of age, who took his own life. Whether he meant to or not, we're not sure. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, the thing is, people are left. I mean, he, he actually, <laughs> he was obviously a bit of a lad, really. He, mm. had, he had three children with three different mothers and, yeah. and didn't live with any of them, but he was very involved with his kids and loved being a father and speaking to, you know, his mom, his sister and partners and people. Um, they were all left with this devastating question of why, why did he do this? What happened? Mm. And of course that leads to all sorts of other questions then as well. Yeah. So I think it's an amazing privilege to be a celebrant Mm. at funerals because i think it's just the sort of it's the peeping point that we have it's the window on a whole pile of yeah. spiritual as i say questions and aspirations that people have but where do they ever find the opportunity to voice them for the yeah. yeah well you know I've, sadly we haven't spent a lot of time in pubs after funerals in the last year but over the years i have had and i'm sure you have had so yeah. many incredible conversations with people oh. in the pub afterwards yeah who, once they feel they've got a priest or a celebrant whoever it is that mm. uh, is accessible that's human mm. um then suddenly it all it all comes out and you just realize you know what there's there's a whole great ocean of questions and curiosity yeah. and interest in people but our society as it functions generally offers so little opportunities and as far as most people are concerned church would be the last place yeah they would go yeah. to explore that which is very sad it is sad but that sort of brings us on to the subject i really wanted to talk with you about now listen i could talk to you uh, 
about anything and I'd love it or I'd rather I would like to listen to you uh, talking about anything um, but but the thing that really resonated I, I think you first wrote about this in how to be a bad Christian this this phrase Christian humanism it was either that one or the second book uh, bad Christian manifesto and it it's one of those phrases um Christian humanism that has just lodged in my mind and I've thought about it and I've heard you speak about it a couple of times and you've mentioned it in the Holy Shed as well and um, I thought I, I really want to get you on this show uh, to explain what you mean by that phrase and why why you came up with a phrase called Christian humanism if that's not too big a question um so, <laughs> no, well, gentlemen, Dave Tomlinson. You're right. I've kind of uh, I've toyed around with it. I've thrown it in. I've mentioned it for some years now. Yeah, uh, probably quite a lot of years. But um, I really sort of focused on it more specifically in in uh, Black Sheep and Prodigals, where I had a oh, right. essentially yeah. a chapter about it, mm. which I entitled in my tongue in cheek way. I believe God is human. It's the rest of us I'm not sure about. Yes, <laughs> and, uh, that's it. And this was my way. And I've subsequently felt I would really like to, to expand that, to write a whole book on the subject because mm. there's so much to it. I think the important thing is, I mean, I didn't invent that phrase, by the way. It goes back a long way, actually. In fact, there is an argument to say that humanism actually has its origins in the Judeo-Christian tradition. Okay. And we associate it now completely with with atheism, with secularism, yeah. which which is a you know a fair conclusion because that's where we commonly encounter it. But actually, it's it's got a history that goes back. Certainly, um, you can find it in the kind of Renaissance period where it was the focus was a great deal on it's it's about these kind of synergies about things that seemed to be different being brought together. And, and back you know, in the Renaissance period, there was this whole uh, thing of, uh, of bringing um, Greek and Roman philosophy into conversation with Christianity and the various sort of synergies of that. And, and I think that sort of tendency to want to bring things into conversation and interaction is is something that goes right back because really Christianity itself is that it's it's it doesn't exist it, apart from its roots in Judaism. Mm. You know, so so right it's there, worth you, remembering that, isn't it? Yeah. That's right, absolutely. Yeah. The, the, the the you know so-called Christian Bible is really an interfaith document, mm. and I think that sadly what Christians have done is subsume that whole you know Hebrew background into Christianity. So it's all it is, is just a sort of something that points toward, that foreshadows, mm. um, that echoes the subsequent message. And, and, and that whole thing is, is expressed in the terms Old Testament, Old and New Testament, mm. which is a form of superiority that I personally, you know, d dislike and, and turn away from completely. I think we should speak about the Hebrew scriptures, really. Mm rather than the Old Testament. And I think that just, you know, not allowing the Hebrew scriptures to, to speak for themselves without plastering all over it, mm. a Christian interpretation yeah. is, is a, a devastating kind of travesty really. So yeah. anyway, uh, that's a slight, but, but all I'm saying is from the beginning, Christianity has been in this kind of 
interaction. And then that has gone on, you know, so certainly in the early centuries of the Christian church, um, you know, Gnosticism was, it was a huge kind of influence from mm. outside of Christianity that then came in the, and, and a lot of the debates and arguments that we, that produced the creeds come out of these tensions that were there, you know, and, and certainly, as I say, in the, in the kind of Renaissance period, it all came up again. So it, it was not actually unusual to, to have these prefixes, you know, to speak about uh, Christian Stoics, you know, or, or Christian Platonists, or even a Christian skeptic, these, these double barrels. Okay. They, they've not been uncommon because obviously, and, and really, if you, I mean, I talked about this in the shed a couple of weeks ago, the story in Acts 17, where Paul went to the Areopagus, at, mm. at, you know, what the Romans called Mars Hill in Athens, um, you know, where he recognized, he, he actually said that when he saw this, this altar to the unknown God, he said, the God that you worship ignorantly, yeah. I'm proclaiming to you. Well, that's a quite profound statement in itself. You know, he was acknowledging the fact that they already had a relationship with God, which mm. he was then bringing his own kind of information into. Um, and interestingly, whereas through the book of Acts, wherever Paul spoke to Jewish audiences, he always began with the Hebrew scriptures he, he, and, and tried to show that Jesus was the fulfillment of mm. this messianic hope and so on. But interestingly, when he spoke to non-Jewish audiences, that the key example of that being this talk at the Areopagus, he never quoted the scriptures yeah. at all. Yeah. He quoted, in fact, uh, a Stoic poet, you know, Greek poet, and he drew on, on their own culture. So that was a form of syncretism that was going on there. And as I say, you find this through the history of the church in the Renaissance period, and then you know beyond that really into more recent times in the 20th century. Um, you've got people like Teilhard de Chardin, you know, who was, who was a Catholic priest, but also a scientist, a paleontologist, mm. a most profound man whose, whose work most of many people don't really hear about but he mm. was such a profound person because he foresaw for example the whole ecological crisis mm. um but but most importantly he brought together science his field of inquiry and in particular evolution mm. with christianity well in the catholic church that was dynamite you know yeah so sure basically he was basically sidelined you know um, but but basically, right back there in the sort of 40s and 50s, he was synchronizing Christianity with evolution and saw no conflict at all between the two. So he, he was one of the first people in the, in the sort of more modern era who actually used the term Christian humanism to oh, describe right. okay. this kind of, you know, sort of synthesis that, that he was bringing. And then you've got people like Karl Rahner, who's a massive kind of figure in, in Catholic theologian, th in theology, who, you know, he argued that Christianity basically stands for and proclaims in its very essence, a radical humanism. And, um, and, a, and a guy who I, I like a lot, but we just never hear, we all hear about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, fantastic, who incidentally is another person who essentially explored this field of Christian humanism. But there's another uh, martyr of that era from, from 
by the Nazis called Alfred Delp, uh, a, a Catholic priest, um, who basically, you know, used the term Christian humanism. And, and what he said was that he saw the crisis the church was in at that period of time was an opportunity for the church to take its starting point from human beings instead of from religion. So that's the key thing. Where, where's your starting point, you see? Now, a, a, a basic tenet of my Christian humanism yeah. is that, um, that beyond religion and ethnicity and all the rest of it, the thing that unites us all most of all is our common humanity. Mm. I think we need to start at that point, not by saying, you know, Muslim, Buddhist, Christian, whatever, but to say first and foremost, what unites yeah. us is a common humanity. And we are Christians or Muslims or Jews or whatever. Secondly to that, there's a more profound thing that unites us. So I think that's kind of, mm. you know, to me, a, 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 a fundamental tenet, if you like. That's, of, of that's what I'm such a about. radical statement. I mean, it's not for me and it doesn't sound like it is for you, but what you're saying, that's dynamite, isn't it? You know, given the church background we came from, yes. you know, the, the most fundamental thing about this. I mean, because I would say I grew up in a tradition where the most fundamental thing is, is I'm a sinner going to hell. Right. So, you know, who's going to rescue me where there's only one person and that's Jesus because he died on a cross for me and because God punished him. I can be forgiven, but that's the only way I can be forgiven. So only a Christian is going to make it. And so, you know, that's basically the background I came from. And then yeah. you sit here in your holy shed and say, do you know what the most important thing is? We are human. <laughs> All of see, us. I don't I don't have to look outside of the Christian or the Judaic Christian tradition to say that mm. because where does the bible begin you know in genesis yeah um yeah. where does it begin it, it it begins with what i see in the very best sense as the myth the creation myths mm. stories which are struggling to make sense to find meaning in our experience that's that's what creation myths in many cultures are all about trying mm. to make sense of it all and and it's important because you know we live by stories mm. It's the story, it's the narrative that we have, that we fit ourselves and everything else into that matters. So the, the narrative in, in, uh, in Genesis begins with, you know, God being the creator of the whole lot, the, the whole universe. And um, you, you don't start there with religion of any sort or type at well, all. You know, you, you start with the fact that humanity has this common origin uh, and incidentally, I mean, we, we could probably have another whole conversation about the sort of fall slash redemption kind of theology of the church, which I believe is something that's imposed on the story in Genesis, rather than being something that is inherently there. Um, I mean, a lot of people don't realize this. I mean, the term fall or even sin does not appear in the Genesis story of the, of the Garden of Eden. I don't think for me, that's not what it's about. Don't get me started. That's another whole thing. <laughs> next, <laughs> next interview. We're coming back to that. <laughs> but the thing, the thing is that um, you know we, you know, often people have talk talk about original sin again, a term that isn't oh, there at all. Yeah, no, don't get me started. Um, 
but, but what we what we do have is what Matthew Fox has kind of famously called original blessing. There's original goodness that God saw what he'd created and proclaimed it to be good. Mm. So I think if we start from a basis of saying that we, we all have a common origin in goodness, mm. that's a pretty good start to play. Now we know that that's not all there is to say and that, you know, that, that we have these other things going on in our psyches and in our lives and our experience yeah. that, that, that make us say, well, but what's wrong with it all? Yeah. But nevertheless, I think if we start with the fact of God's original blessing on the whole of creation, on all of humanity, and that that's where we, we come from, our most common reality. Now, forget anything about religion or anything else and just take that as a it's such a self-evident statement mm. that what we all share in common mm. is a common humanity yeah. and male, female, black, brown, white, whatever, that, that this is our common starting place. And I think if we don't start from that point, then everything else gets skewed, you know? So then I think yeah. I can say first and foremost, I'm, I'm a human. Well, actually, I would go even further back than that, because that's what I've said in my statement of Christian humanism, is that our most basic reality is that we're earthlings. Mm. Because yeah. I, think, okay. yeah. I think in this day and age, that is so crucial, because we live in an age when we are, you know, causing thousands of our fellow creatures to become extinct. Yeah. You know, it, it's like there's a mass kind of slaughter going on yeah. in our in our times and what we're doing to, to the earth. So, and, and of course, it's, it's fantastic. Whenever you listen to all of the astronauts, you know, who've, who, who've gone outside of this planet, had that privileged opportunity to look back at this little magical blue yeah. bauble in a sea of blackness, is that what strikes them is, it's one planet. Yeah. This is planet Earth. Yeah. We are one species, we're one family. Yeah. And so it's I not just that we're humans, we're earthlings. I mean, and you're back at Genesis again, aren't you? You know, I am absolutely. A whole lot is good. Absolutely, because and that's true. Even in the in the fabric of the story itself in Genesis, you know that that it says that that we you know were made from the dust of the earth. Mm. We're not apart from. We're a part of. Yeah. The very stuff of this planet. Yeah. So that's that's our starting point and. As I say, whether you're looking at this from a religious point of view or you look at it from uh, a, a kind of human experience now in an age of climate change and all the rest that's going on, mm. I think, you know, we're not really going to seriously change the direction that we're heading in from a kind of environmental point of view without a switch of consciousness, you know. Mm. I think that doing all the things that we need, you know, there's a lot of pragmatics which are all important. But beneath that, there is the need for this uh, identity shift, this consciousness shift to realize that we are not these creatures outside of the rest of mm. the kind of planet, sort of doing things with it, but that we're actually part of it. And that what we do to the atmosphere, what we do to the soil, what we do to our fellow creatures, ultimately we do to ourselves because we're part and parcel. So that's that's completely a starting point for me. And um, so, yeah, I, I think that, you know, there, there are a number of things that we, you know, I could talk about, which are sort of part of 
what yeah, I've yeah. kind of called my manifesto of Christian yeah. humanism, which yeah. is like the fact that, you know, I, I believe in absolute freedom of uh, intellectual or rational inquiry, you know. Mm. So I think this is, when you read people, I mean, I've, I've just happened to have here this book by A.C. Grayling, The God Argument. So A.C. Grayling is one of the kind of key voices of a, of a kind of atheist humanism. Yeah. And um, I really like this book, by the way. But, right. And the interesting thing is, it's a book that's split into two halves. And uh, if, if you look into the, the, you know, part one of the book, which is, you know, 10 chapters or whatever, is called Against Religion. Right. And then the second half, part two, is called For Humanism. Well, the thing about this is, you know, that I, I read through all his Against Religion, and I just, I just don't know why intelligent people, as he undoubtedly is, someone I admire a great deal, who, who take the atheist position, have to identify themselves over against religion, which they don't think they don't even believe in. You know, yeah. why do you even start from that point? Who cares yeah. if you think that religion yeah. is just some silly kind yeah. of yeah. thing, you know, in human history and stuff, then forget it. It's going it, to it'll go. So when I come to his second part for humanism, yeah. now I find I'm saying, oh, my goodness, I completely believe this, you know. Yeah, yeah, so it is interesting, I, isn't it? I think this is, uh, you know, one of the big things that I'm concerned about. And one of the reasons why I take this title or this label of Christian humanist is because I think we have to shift this argument out of this domain that people like A.C. Grayling and Richard Dawkins and lots of others have created. Yeah, the high profile atheists. Yeah, That's right. We're always we're kind of trying to do if we get caught into their argument is defend something that actually I don't even believe in in the first place because yeah, exactly. the God you don't believe in that God. Yeah, the God they're debunking is I don't believe it. And what really irritates me is that I think some of these people are of course smart enough and they've engaged in conversations with much more intelligent Christian figures, people like Richard Holloway, for instance, in, you know, who I, I admire enormously, the former Bishop of, of Edinburgh, um, mm. who've had conversations with these people. So they know that this kind of cardboard cut out God in the heavens with a, you know, beard, a beard and all the rest of it is, is not the only form of God on offer, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I think that, you know, what, what I want to, to do is to say, actually, for me, what, what many of these people describe as humanism mm. and his manifesto, for instance, of humanism is something I can completely embrace. And not just by way of saying, I like what you're saying, I'll incorporate that. But I, actually, I can say this springs out of the faith that I have. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Brings so, so let's let's get on to what do you believe? You know, what's what's your creed as a Christian humanist, if that's not too difficult a question to ask you? Well, I think that I think that it is some of, you know, a couple of things that I've already mentioned, yeah, really. Yeah. I think that it begins with the fact that our most basic reality is yeah. that we're earthlings. Yeah. yeah. So that's the stuff. My most basic reality isn't I'm a Christian. My yeah. most basic reality is I'm an earthling yeah. who then happens to be a Christian. And regardless of, of kind of differences of gender or ethnicity or religion or whatever, uh, yeah. skin color, what unites me most of all 
with other people is a common humanity. Yeah. You know? And so that's a starting. I'm not starting off with a differentiation. I'm starting off with a unity. unity. I love that. Yeah. And then these these other differences, you know, like, you know, the color of my skin or my background or history or my religion or whatever. These they're not unimportant. They're all very important. The fact that I am a Christian to me is very important, but it's not the most basic reality in my in my kind of life living here on planet earth um i i believe in the value and dignity of every single person and to put that in you know the the terms that i often like to go to the, the quakers mm. you know talk about there being that of god in everyone mm. so so that's another one of my kind of tenets if you like that i believe in the value and dignity of each person because as a christian humanist rather than just a humanist I believe there is that of God. Mm, it, yeah. Okay. Thank dignity you. Yeah. and worth and value. And therefore I think every single person has a right to be accorded and should be accorded the, you know, maximum sense of value and worth in the way that they are treated in the world. Mm. That, that is, that is possible. Uh, and that is compatible with the rights of others, by the way, which is another important part of that, you know, um, I believe that morality is an intrinsic part of being human. That, mm. Therefore, a consequence of that is, I think, you don't have to have God to be good. Right. No. Oh. So, so, Hang on, though. If you don't believe in God, the wheels will fall off and the world will collapse <laughs> in on itself and you'll just be a terrible, sinful person, surely. Yeah. <laughs> As you say. <laughs> the, thing, the thing is that... I. I can say that. And for some people, that's a kind of quite radical thing. Mm. My comment is, isn't it obvious? Isn't it obvious? The fact that you can look at an awful lot of people who were the badge Christian and who do things in the name of Jesus Christ that I find utterly appalling, mm. you know, uh, and that has been true historically. I mean, you know, the yeah. whole slavery kind of, episode you know apartheid in south africa so many things have been yeah. justified from the bible from the new testament and have been done in the name of, of christ and and then you just look at just the way people treat each other and there are some just bloody awful expressions of people toward other people in the name of christ you know yeah. on yeah. the other hand i look at people who may well call themselves atheists or who are certainly not religious, and I can see incredible goodness mm. in people's lives. Yeah. So, in a way, it's almost shocking that people would find that that comment radical. You know? Yes. You, yeah. Uh, yeah. Because actually, yeah. it's right in front of our eyes. It is. It is. Yeah. So sure. It's there for all to see. And the interesting thing is that there's a lot of work and this would be part of where I'd like to expand this subject in the future. There's an awful lot of work being done by in the world of, um, of primatology, you know, the study of the great apes. Yeah. Um, people like Jane Goodall, you know, and, uh, and Francis Duval, who are sort of leading primatologists who have spent years and years and years working with chimpanzees and bonobos and, you know, other, all kinds of other sort of monkeys and apes. Um, and what has come out of all of that, you know, from a, from a 
totally scientific point of view is that there is empathy mm. amongst apes, you know. Mm. I mean, chimpanzees and bonobos are the two interesting ones because those two, uh, you know, kind of expressions of great apes are the ones with whom we as humans share most DNA. Yeah. By the way, that's like about 99 point something. Wow. You know? I mean, it's huge. It's huge. It's incredible, isn't it? The, the, the commonality that we have at a biological and scientific level with, you know, with, with bonobos and chimpanzees is massive, you know. But the thing is, through, you know, as I say, immense amount of, of research and study and observation, uh, far more than we could go into right now, what people like Francis de Vaux, for instance, are arguing as a primatologist is that morality isn't something that comes down from God up there mm. required of us. Mm. It's actually something that comes up from within. Mm. And so, as I say, there are lots of demonstrations of, of and some of them profoundly moving ones of, of, of signs of, of empathy. And even, you know, even the signs of a sense of justice between you know between various forms of apes and particularly say chimpanzees and bonobos and what what is that telling us well what that's telling us is that that's that's not therefore coming to the conclusion there is no god mm. uh, what it's saying is that if if i believe that evolution is part of the process of this life that we have in the world we live in which i do um that it's somehow it's somehow part of, of that process, you know? And so, you know, what, as I say, is, is observed in primatology is that it's not, it's not, you, it's, there's not something that you could, you could call morality, hmm. but there is the, the, the building blocks that make morality. Okay. And so there's, there's a process going on. And, um, well, it's interesting. I mean, my, my just, I mean, a flash of my interpretation of, the, the sort of Genesis story in the Garden of Eden is that rather than seeing what happened with Eve and Adam as a moral fall, that would suggest that they were completely moral beforehand. Mm. You know, but if they lived in this so-called innocence, then that isn't morality anyway, because for morality to morality, be morality, you have to know the difference and make a choice, yeah. which incidentally, and the story is eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So to me, what Eve did rather bravely in eating the fruit in that story was a kind of narrative expression of this shift that human beings have made in the whole process of biological evolution to moral responsibility, to where we know the difference between good and evil, oh. and we make choices, you know. So, uh, as I say, yeah. you know, none of that kind of does anything so far as my faith or belief in God is concerned, but because I think, uh, you know that's much that's on a, that's on a much different and bigger scale really mm. um yeah so i think that this sort of idea of of saying that you know you have to become a christian let's say yeah in order to be a moral person and to you know to be yeah. is just it doesn't bear out in observation i don't think it's good theology 
and uh, it doesn't it doesn't bear out in kind of scientific terms at all really mm. um so 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 that's that would be and an, another one which i mentioned earlier is is that i believe in the absolute freedom of rational inquiry that no belief or creed or conviction whether it's religious or scientific or anything should be beyond question mm. yeah yeah so i think that Obviously, that raises issues in terms of what you think about divine revelation and all the rest of it. Mm. Um, but I, th I think that if we go into a conversation with the wider world on the basis of saying, actually, we've got the truth, yeah, you know, and, and you haven't, then I, <laughs> I think it's little wonder that nobody is listening much to what we're saying. Um, <laughs> So, and, and I think in, in reality, certainly my Christian faith has evolved and changed over the years, as I'm sure mm. most people's has, mm. um, because everything ultimately has to be, you know, and people say to me, well, how far do you go for that? You know, if somebody could prove that there was no God, would you therefore believe that? Well, if somebody could prove it, which I don't think anyone could, but if they could prove it, then of course, why would I carry on yeah, yeah. with a belief that was now proven to be not true, you know? Yeah. But of course, it, you know, faith in God doesn't quite work like that. But I think what I'm saying is, I, I can't think of any aspect of my faith that ultimately I wouldn't be prepared to question, mm. although I'm not living my life doing that every day, because that would be hideous, you know? Mm. But... Um, so, so I think that's... But it's a very relevant thing for our podcast because, that, you know, what often precipitates the mid-faith crisis is a whole load of questions. Questions about the nature of reality, questions about the nature of God. Um, you know, another thing in that book you mentioned that, you know, is so good is I don't believe in an interventionist God. Well, I, and, and I agree, uh, I think. <laughs> I think. Um, not, I certainly agree in the traditional sense that an interventionist God is thought. I mean, I think, I, I, I've said to you before, I think it's, it's, not, it's not a question of whether God exists. For me, it's a question of whether anything else exists. If, if God is in all things, then God can yeah. perhaps intervene. But I do not, I, you know, I, I think... Well, I think... I've been yeah, in I'm enough good. pastoral practice to know that the, the saying a magic prayer and God changing something doesn't... Yeah, yeah. ...doesn't I seem mean, fair or right or... It seems cruel and unjust. And yeah. the way I would put it, you see, is because because saying I don't believe in the interventionist God is kind of part A of a statement, really. Mm. Uh, because part B would be, I believe in an intervention in in an interactional God. Mm. You know, so I think that God is is part of everything, mm. and is therefore interacting with everything all of the time. Yes, exactly. Um, I think the problem, one of the problems with the language of interventionist God is it suggests a God outside of everything. Yes. Kind of pops in and out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In some idiosyncratic way, you know, because if if I were God in that position, I wouldn't have intervened in the way some people claim that God has. And I would definitely intervene a hell of a lot more in ways that God doesn't seem to have done. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, right. So, it, it, so, so I, I think that the chapter that I wrote about this in, in Black Sheep is, I don't believe in the interventionist God, but that doesn't mean I don't believe in miracles. Because yeah. that's, an, that's that, but it's what you what you call a miracle or how yeah. you see that. I think life is a miracle and that life's- Oh, yeah, darn lots of miracle, yeah. yeah. So, 
yeah. Uh, there we go. Um, where are we up to? <laughs> well, we're on your creedal statements. We've 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 handled morality. I mean, where do you want to go? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, as you know, we've also looked at this whole thing yeah. of freedom of inquiry. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I believe in to use more kind of what you might think of as secular language. You know, uh, I believe in democracy. I don't think democracy is perfect. No. But um, the humanist part of, you know, the humanist expression of my Christianity is that I think that probably democracy is the best framework for human community to operate in that we have yet come up with. Mm. Um, and the kind of ideals behind it, I, I believe in human rights. Yeah. Um, and, and the maximum possible conditions for human beings to flourish. Yeah, yeah. So, you know that that would be, and so I so I think it's consequently our responsibility to attempt, uh, you know, to seek justice and equality for every single person, you know, to the nth degree, and to make sure that every possible person's voice has the possibility of being heard. Mm. Um, so I mean, some of these things, as I say, I think fundamentally the whole list of things that I could lay out. Um, I don't think most humanists would have any problem with. Yeah. And I, and I, but I don't see why any Christians should have any problem with them either. Yeah. Yeah. Um, exactly. I may struggle with this, the terminology of Christian humanists, but in fact, uh, as I've argued in, in the book, all of those things that I've, that I'm talking about, whilst not being able to point to them in an obvious on the surface way in the gospels, I think they're all consistent with the figure of Jesus, actually. Yeah. So I think I could, I would happily say that, you know, that Jesus to me is, he, Jesus is my model humanist, if yeah. you like. Yeah. You know, that, that would be my kind of, you know, my North Star where I'm looking, yeah. really. Yeah. Because all of these things I'm saying, whilst I might put them in modern kind of, some may, may think secular language, actually, they're things that I think are mirrored in the figure. Yeah. Well, this sort of leads me to, to I guess, I guess a, a question uh, we need to start wrapping this up, but, but uh, about Jesus and, you know, or, or to do with why should you become a Christian? I feel like in, in sort of mid-faith crisis, there's a loss of confidence in, in like evangelism, I guess we would have called it, you know, like why share faith? What is the good news? What makes me different? Why would I share with my atheist neighbor, my faith. So how do you sort of tackle yeah. a question? You know, I think, I think that, um, I think it's Marcus Borg who, who I first read this in, but I've taken it as my own ever since, you know, is that when, when religion, when faith basically builds on a kind of afterlife assumption, yeah, yeah, it distorts everything mm. because, because then faith religion becomes all about my kind of insurance policy for what happens after yeah. so that kind of heaven and hell kind of mm. afterwards sort of scenario ends up then washing back and influencing everything you Absolutely. know and so that's what that's what sharing my faith's about it's about making sure people don't go to hell and they get to heaven yeah. instead um you know conversion is is all about that and so on 
Whereas when I look at Jesus in the Gospels, that's not what you see at all. Yeah. You don't see that at all. You know, what Jesus talked about, you know, when, when, when someone came and said, what must I do to have eternal life? You know, well, within the kind of normal evangelical kind of scenario, yeah. You, you know, you, you put your trust in Jesus, you sort of, you know, get your sins forgiven and then you go to heaven. Is to... Jesus didn't do any of that at all. You know, right. he actually did it. What in most Christian terms is entirely the wrong thing to say. Keep the commandments, he said. Yeah. And that's yeah. definitely what you shouldn't say. Yeah. You know, uh, followed up by sell all that you have and give to the poor. No, 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 no. This is good works, you know. Yeah. Well, it's not about good works. It's about yeah. Jesus good. got that totally wrong. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's actually about good life. I think Jesus called people. Eternal life was a way of being, a way of living. And you know, the other, another example would be Zacchaeus. You know, the little man who hid in the tree uh, to to be able to see Jesus without being seen. And uh, and he was a tax collector. He was hated because he was a kind of, you know, uh, a kind of betrayer with the romans and everything and um and and jesus went went to his house for tea as the little christian children's right. chorus goes right. and um and 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 he ended up saying you know look i'm going to give back everything that i've taken fraudulently i'm going to repay it four times i'm going to da 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 da, da. and he came up with all these things he's going to do and jesus said right this day or you could say this moment salvation has come to this house yeah so salvation in what jesus said there wasn't go to heaven exactly wasn't Zacchaeus, no. don't worry, you go to heaven when you die your sins are forgiven it was you changing your behavior you're living in this way is actually to to enter into eternal life to yeah. to be living and so the word repentance which i think has been horribly kind of hijacked with all sorts of guilt and shame and all kinds of other things or 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 you know, religious conversion. I mean, the word is to find a new mentality, you know, to have a change of mentality, to, to look at everything in a different way. Um, I like, I think it's Marcus Borg actually who puts it, says to enter the greater mind, you know, to find the greater mind, to get the bigger perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Get out of this little egotistical me, me, me getting everything for me, including heaven when I die, you yeah. know, all the me, 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 to then suddenly see it's not all about me. I'm part of a bigger whole here. And so, you know, I think that what happened to Zacchaeus was repentance. But what that meant was he stopped living this way and he determined to live another way, which didn't mean that he was going to be perfect in that, but yeah. he meant that that was the way he tilted his life now. Yeah. So, you know, I think Jesus to me is... You know that well they called him master didn't they and and yeah. the term master is often used in kind of spiritual circles i would say jesus is my master he's my teacher he's the one who shows me a different way of being in the world and offers you know the energy and motivation holy spirit whatever you want to call that you know to yeah. to find that resolve turning into a reality um so i don't think i don't think that talking to my neighbor about jesus is essential so that they can go to heaven instead of going to hell yeah but i think actually the message of jesus is really good news yeah that doesn't make me feel i've got to go and make everyone come to church 
mm. or I've got to turn all these Muslims into Christians mm. because Jesus didn't go about it like that at all. He didn't have a church to join. I don't think there's any evidence in the Gospels that he tried to create a new religion. Right. You know, when he encountered people who were not Jews, he never tried to make them become Jews, uh, much less, you know, this new thing, Christian. He called them to the kingdom of God. You know, yeah. he pointed to a way of living and being. So his his passionate message was the kingdom of God, which is a way of living both personally and collectively in the world. Mm. That is how we believe God wants us to live. Yeah. And, um, you know, so it's interesting. I mean, a key, a key thing that is, that's been recognized in the teaching of Jesus, but in all of the other religious traditions, actually, is what's called the golden rule, you know, yeah. of yeah. treating other people the way that you would wish to be treated. And um, that's... Uh, in itself is an oversimplification. I mean, it, it, you can put, you can pull holes in in that as a statement, because it's a generalization. But to me, that is the heart and soul of what the kingdom yeah. of God is about. Well, look, and, Dave, listen, I I could talk to you for hours. I will talk <laughs> to you for hours, no doubt. But and um, we need to wrap this up. I just got one last question for you uh, i'm just gonna you know just just throw this one in sideways uh, what would you say to to people to good church folk who are really struggling with church they perhaps don't know if they want to go back to church at the moment they've got lots of questions they're struggling to find a sort of sense of um coherence at the moment and feeling at peace and you know like they like they really want to be a part of it all again how would you encourage someone like that at the moment who's just struggling away with faith? I think, you know, if, I mean, if we have the time to talk about it, which we don't, you mm. know, looking at something like the stages of faith that, yeah. you know, you find in Scott Peck, for instance, who, who's got a nice simple four thing one. I think it's about moving from that stage to which he calls conformity and institutionalism into the kind of uh, questioning uh, in more individual because it is more individual it's me stepping out agnostic mm. stage is saying hey so it, it's where everything begins to unravel you know and that's when you you know you face the question does that mean that that's how it is and there is no way of of raveling it back you know putting yeah. it back together again yeah. or or you know so i think that's a big crisis point and that so much of my pastoral life has been spent with people yeah. at that point you know and trying to help them and my my answer to, to that when people come as they say they've come over the years in hordes isn't to say okay get rid of that and here's the alternative mm. you know to present them with another yeah package but rather to encourage them on that journey yeah. and to say part of you know part of what happens here is that you lose your nerve because yeah you know, it was all so simple before, it all made sense and now it doesn't. And I think what's so important is to hold your nerve. That's lovely, thank which, you. Which maybe to say, believe in yourself, trust yourself, which I think is also a way of saying, trust God in you, you know. Yes. But, but you know, to, to have faith in yourself. And I think that there's a, a lovely man whose funeral I took a few years back, um, who's an author who, who wrote his autobiography, he called it efforts of truth. 
and I've I've loved that title and I wish I'd got it first, you know. Um, and Nicholas Mosley is the name of the man, by the way. And uh, and so he could, and and I thought, what a great thing that is. And I feel that summarizes what my own experience has been. You know, it's about efforts of truth. I because in saying that, it, it's an acknowledgement that I probably will never actually have truth. You know, I'll never finally get it all sorted. Certainly not here and now in this life anyway. Whatever else there may be, um, but it's a journey. And efforts is a good word because it suggests that this isn't just a kind of little hobby, a little pastime. It, it's this is my life work. Mm. It's, it's strenuous. It's yeah. unnerving. It's frightening at times. It's also exhilarating and exciting mm. of committing to this journey of making efforts of truth, of trying to think and um, knowing that you'll probably have to rethink again and then rethink again and rethink again but the important thing as i say is is hold your nerve because in the end you're not possibly not remotely going to be judged on the basis of whether you have, can pass an exam on the basis of ticking all these right boxes and answering all these right questions yeah. no i think that the measure of a person you know, is the integrity with which they approach life, mm. you know, and if that means that at some stages it puts you outside of the circle of conformity, outside the circle of friends who suddenly become very concerned about you, probably quite genuinely. Yeah. Don't worry about that. Yeah. That's so, a lovely message. Yeah. Hold your nerve, folks. Hold your nerve. Hold your nerve. Dave, thank you. Listen, thank you so much. As always, it is such a joy. Uh, to talk to you and I hope I can drink wine with you and Pat sometime soon soon uh, soon <laughs> but bless you mate keep up the great work keep up the fabulous uh, job with the holy shared and just sharing uh, this stuff that you've been learning and thinking about because it, it really does bless us folks Thanks, and can I turn that round and say you know well done to you because I think that you know I admire you as a person who's making efforts of truth and I think that setting up this podcast and responding to this, you know, inquiring spirit that so many people find themselves caught into uh, is such a majestic, it's such a wonderful thing to do. So I think that, you know, that what you're doing with this is great. Uh, bless you. And Nick will appreciate that. I should mention Nick. I'm contractually yes. obliged to say he's the greatest author of that, this. That like marriage contract or I'm sorry. <laughs> 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 Thanks, Dave. Great talking to you Sorry. as ever. Bless you, mate. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. So that was uh, Joe interviewing Dave Tomlinson. Well, there's lots in there uh, yeah. to think about. Um, we're not going to talk about that this week. Because no. I don't know if I've mentioned this, but Joe's on holiday. He's not actually here. Yeah, and I certainly haven't mentioned it. So he's he's got no internet access or anything. No. So he, he can't contribute. <laughs> so um, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about it in a couple of weeks' time, and of course that will give you opportunity to um, give us your feedback and pick yes. up on anything you liked or hated or whatever. Yeah, from, yeah. from there. Um, what what do you want to talk about? What's the kind of subjects that you think you're going to leap out to you in a couple of weeks' time? There are lots of things I want to say. I want to talk about being earthlings. I want to talk about um, 
also kind of the the transition to what we mean by evangelism now if you if you do view yourself as a christian humanist what that means for evangelism i think is a fascinating conversation uh to have and uh, yeah so we, we'll start there yeah i think there's a lot about uh genesis in there that i wasn't mm. expecting to to mm. hear and uh i think the idea of uh an interactional God rather than an interventionist God is a mm. really powerful and interesting mm. idea. And I, I'd, I'd like to pick up on that. And maybe I, I want to think about, well, what does salvation mean then in mm. this case? Yeah. Because if it's not about the afterlife, what is it about? Yes. Um, and, and that's quite a big thing. So those are the kind of things that I think we're going to be touching on in a couple of weeks' time. We'll riff around it. Yeah. But we'd love to hear from all of you and what you think and how you respond to that stuff. Um, yeah, please do write into Joe at midfaithcrisis.org. Uh, so there we go. I'm sorry that we're not here to do a podcast yeah, this week. My apologies. Yeah. 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 If only if only we could do it in advance. <laughs> I know. Wouldn't that be great? That'd be planning. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we don't do that. Not going to Anyway, happen. so we'll be back in a couple of weeks. See you then. <laughs> <laughs>